passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. One of the first American-born missionaries served in the early 1800s. His name was Adinaram Judson. Adinaram Judson was known as one of the uh, first missionaries to not only be from America, but also to serve in what was once known as Burma. And Judson had a very, very difficult life. He, he did a, a lot of faithful ministry and yet suffered in, in countless ways. And in the midst of extreme suffering, he said these words. If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. Judson said this in the midst of losing his first two wives while on the mission field to disease. He said this in the midst of serving uh, almost two years in prison multiple times. He said this as he lost five of his 12 children to disease on the mission field. He said this after 10 years of ministry and only having 10 or 20 people in the church that he had planted. And in the midst of all of his suffering, he said that he not only had confidence that God was with him, but that God had called him to Burma. And every death, every season of suffering that he experienced, he said that it came from the hands of a loving God. Even if he couldn't see the purpose of what he was experiencing, he knew that God was at work. He was confident that God was walking with him with each scoop of dirt that he threw onto the coffins of his loved ones. He knew that God loved him with each lash of the whip cutting into his back. He knew and trusted that God had a plan for him. A dinner named Judson trusted in God. Do you have that same sort of trust? Do you place that same sort of trust and that faith in God? God willing, we haven't experienced that same sort of hardship that Adinaram Judson has. But is your initial instinct, whether times are good or times are bad, to look at what you're experiencing and say, all of this comes from God's hand. And God is solely working out of his love for me. I think many of us on our best days would say absolutely yes. God does indeed love me and he watches over me. He orchestrates everything, the good and the bad. He orchestrates it all for my good and for his glory. But in our weaker moments, we wonder whether God is actually present. We wonder if God actually cares about us. We wonder if God is actually loving it's not just about our suffering. This question of whether God is actually present is really something that encapsulates all of life. In our day-to-day -day lives, when we seemingly do things that are mundane and unimportant, does God care? Or is God only concerned about the 1% of our time that we spend in church or in prayer or doing personal devotions? Does God really have a plan for my life? If so, why is it so hard for me to figure out what that plan is? Does God have a plan for who I should marry? Does God have a plan for where I should go to college? Does God have a plan for what job I should take or whether I should switch jobs? And if so, why is he so silent? These are the questions 
that Genesis 24 attempts to answer. As we go through the somewhat mind-numbing experience of preparing our taxes right now before April 15th, does God actually care about that? Does God actually care about the times where I'm working at my son or daughter's uh, sporting events? Does God care about the ways that I'm volunteering at their school or in the community? Is God at work in the 99% of my life that doesn't involve church? As I mentioned, Genesis 24 asks that question and attempts to answer it. Genesis 24 is where we're going to be this morning. It takes place 10 to 20 years after the experience and the the event of Genesis 22. If you notice, you've been tracking with us, we're actually going to skip over Genesis 23 today. We're going to look at Genesis 23, which tells us the story of Sarah's death next week when we look at Genesis 25. Genesis 25 tells us the story of Abraham's death. So this morning, we're going to look at Genesis 24, right in the middle. This is one of the last things that Abraham does and is recorded in Scripture as we come to the close of Abraham's life. As we open Genesis 24, we see that Isaac is now a middle-aged man. He is now 40. His mom has passed away a few years before this, and his dad is getting frailer and frailer, closer and closer to death as time goes on. What's significant here in Genesis 24 is that Isaac is still single. Now, that might not be significant or too unusual in our day and age and in our context for someone to be in their 40s and single, but it was completely unheard of in that day and age. To make matters worse, it was a borderline crisis for Abraham's family, this family that had been promised to Abraham that he would have many children and that those children would be known through Isaac. It was a borderline crisis for Abraham and his family. They say Abraham is painfully aware of the fragility of life as he is still mourning the loss of his wife, Sarah. As he's mourning the loss of Sarah, he decides it's time to to do something about Isaac's singleness. He decides to find a wife for Isaac. As we look at Genesis 24, as we look at this search for a wife for Isaac, we ask the question, does God actually care? Does God actually care about Isaac finding a wife here? Is God actually involved in this process? As we read this story, we're going to see that the answer is a resounding yes. God is involved in every single aspect of this journey to find Rebecca, Isaac's future wife. And it's my hope that after we read this chapter, that each and every one of us will feel confident that God is involved in our lives, in every single aspect of our lives. It doesn't matter how big it may be or how small it may seem. It doesn't matter how obvious it may be or how hidden it may be. God is involved and God is at work in our lives. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 1. It says this, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hands under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, 
See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give you this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall surely take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. This chapter begins with Abraham tasking his chief servant to go on a a wife hunting mission for Isaac. He says, it's time for Isaac to get married and I want you to be the one who finds that wife for Isaac. But he says, I don't want you to find this wife among the Canaanites because I want to follow God. I want you to travel all the way back to where I came from, from the land of northern Mesopotamia and find a wife among my clan there. And why is Abraham so insistent that a wife not be taken from the people of Canaan? Perhaps it's because Abraham could remember what happened to his nephew Lot when Lot married a Canaanite woman. Perhaps he remembers the type of men that Lot's daughters were engaged to as men of Sodom. Abraham knew that the Canaanites were wicked and he didn't want to risk God's blessing just in a way to find a convenient way to get Isaac a wife. And so he says, I want you to travel back to Mesopotamia. But even more than that, even more important to, uh, to Abraham than not having a wife from Canaan is to not bring Isaac back to the land of Mesopotamia. See, God had called Abraham. And God had called Abraham to leave behind the land of Mesopotamia, leave behind his father's house and the journey forward in faith. And if he would do that, he would promise him many things. He promised him that he would be a great nation. He promised Abraham that he would have many children and they would be reckoned through Isaac. He promised him that he would inherit the land of Canaan. Abraham was unwilling to risk one promise the promise of the land of Canaan in order to fulfill the other promise of many offspring. And so he offers this task to this man and says, I want you to find me a wife for my song and son. And what's significant here about Abraham is his faith. If you look at Abraham, he is completely and utterly expectant that God will keep his promise. I think the most important verses of this chapter are verses 7 and 8. He doesn't want anything to hinder the promise. And this is what he says. I'm going to reread it. He says this, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. Let those words sink in. Let the words of Abraham here sink in. He's got a great trust that God is going to come through. He's incredibly confident that God has a plan. And that God will work everything out for good. He's not concerned that Isaac is still single at this moment. He's not concerned about the difficulty of convincing a woman to travel all the way back to Mes- from Mesopotamia to Canaan. He completely trusts in God. 
It's the same heart that we see in Adiniram Judson when he says that every trial that I have experienced is ordered by the hand of infinite love and mercy. What leads someone like Abraham to show this trust in God? What leads someone like Adiniram Judson to express something that is so similar in the midst of hardship and suffering? The answer is simple, but it's extremely profound as well. Abraham has seen too much from God to doubt whether God is going to take care of him. He has experienced time and time again God coming through for him, taking care of him, that the logistics of finding a wife at this point are not all that troubling to him. In fact, no wonder that Abraham lives until he is 175. It seems like he doesn't have a care in the world. He trusts that God is going to take care of him. Even if the servant is unsuccessful, and notice that he mentions that as a possibility here in verse 8. He says that it is possible that the servant will travel to Mesopotamia and won't find a wife who is willing to return. So even if the servant is unsuccessful, it doesn't mean that God has failed. It simply means in Abraham's eyes that God is going to keep his promise in a different way than Abraham is expecting. This is the God who allowed him to have a child at 100. This God will come through. Abraham is completely, utterly content, trusting that God will be at work and that God does keep his promises. Wouldn't it be great to have that same sort of confidence? What if I told you that that same confidence would be available to each and every one of us? What if I told you that the key, the starting point to that same sort of confidence is to remember the ways that God has been at work in your own history, to remember the ways that God has come through for you, to remember the ways that God has looked after you, to remember the ways that God has forgiven you when you stray away from him. The key to this confidence is sown in the seeds of the past. This confidence in God, this rock-solid trust that cannot be shaken is found by looking back at what God has done for us. And you see, Abraham isn't the only one who expresses this sort of confidence that God will come through. His servant, who has been with Abraham seemingly from the beginning, his eldest servant, his chief servant, expresses that same sort of confidence. And he says, you know what, Abraham, I agree to these terms And so he begins this gathering of an entourage, including a bride price, and they begin to journey off towards Abraham's homeland. That's what verses 10 through 14 tell us of. Please continue following along. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. 
Now, depending on the route that Abraham's servant would have taken, it would have been about uh, just under 600 miles from Abraham's camp all the way to the city of Nahor. And he makes this journey, which is just summed up in verse 10. He makes this journey in probably what is about a month. And that's just assuming that he goes directly to the location. He knows exactly where he is headed. Now, notice that Abraham's directions here are a little generic. And so it's very possible that he had to wander around for a while trying to find Abraham's family. If that were the case, it would have taken him much longer for this journey. As he finally arrives at Nahor, the place where Abraham's family lives in that region, he stops on the fringes of the town and he does something significant. He drops to his knees in prayer. Now, we know very little about this man. All that we know about this man is really contained in these verses here in this chapter. But the little that we do know about Abraham's servant show us that he is one of the most appealing, one of the most exemplary uh, characters, not only in Genesis, but the entirety of Scripture. Consider what we know about this man based off of this chapter. First, he is faithful and devoted to Abraham. He goes on a 1,000-mile round-trip journey on foot in order to fulfill Abraham's wishes. Every step, every moment is a step of obedience following Abraham's desires. He is a faithful servant. He is a devoted servant to Abraham. Not only that, but he is persistent. Later on, he is in Rebekah's household and Rebekah's family offers him some food and he declines to take that food out of urgency. He is not distracted from the mission that he has been sent out on. There's a possibility that this man is named Eliezer of Damascus. Genesis 15 tells us the name of Abraham's chief servant is Eliezer. Not only does it tell us that, but it tells us that Eliezer is Abraham's heir before Abraham has a child. And if this is Eliezer, which we have good reason to think that it is, every single moment that he is on this journey is an act of selflessness. Every single moment that he is journeying, trying to find a bride for Isaac, he is actually ending any chance for him to ascertain or take possession of the wealth of Abraham. This is an incredible exemplary figure here, if this is Eliezer of Damascus. Not only that, but he is extremely wise. Verse 21 tells us that he sits silently observing Rebekah to see if she is the one that God has chosen for Isaac. He's extremely wise, but he's also brilliant and gifted. A significant portion of this chapter, which we're not going to be able to read this morning, tells us of his, uh, he begins to recount the, the story of his journey to Rebekah's family. And the way that he structures this and the way that he tells Rebecca's family about everything that is happening shows us that he has structured it carefully to convince them to allow Rebecca to return with him. He's an extremely gifted man in speech. He's extremely brilliant in knowing how to persuade them. Not only that, but he is focused on his mission. The family of Rebecca, they agree to allow Rebecca to return, but they want to delay And this man won't take no for an answer. He holds his ground, insisting that they return to Abraham without delay. He is focused on his mission. This servant is the type of person that every single employer dreams about. This is someone who is faithful, who is devoted, who is persistent, who is selfless, who is wise, who is brilliant, who is gifted, and he's focused on the mission. 
If Eliezer of Damascus would have put his resume out on a job site, he would have gotten 100 calls before he closed his web browser. This is the man that no wonder Abraham put in charge of his household. No wonder Abraham tasks him with finding Isaac a wife. And yet at the start of his mission, this man, this servant, does not rely on his gifts. He doesn't rely on his talents. He doesn't rely on his intellect. He doesn't rely on his abilities, even though he would be qualified to do so if anyone is qualified to do so. Instead of relying on those things, he stops. He bends his knees and he prays. Instead of relying on himself, he decides to rely on God in prayer. The application there kind of writes itself, doesn't it? How often do we rely on ourselves, on our strength, on our talents, on our gifts, our abilities, instead of relying on God? How often do we rely on God in the midst of our day today? Bill Hybels, he's a pastor of a church, uh, Willow Creek Church in the Chicagoland area. And he has a sign, a picture that he has in his office And in his office, it's where he can see it. He sees it every day and says this, when I work, I work. When I pray, God works. What a perfect description of this servant. A man who was completely qualified to serve faithfully. And yet instead of acting out of his own ability, he bends his knees and prays. And what an incredible challenge for us as we seek to follow God, as we seek to have this same sort of godliness that we see from this servant. See, not only is this man an incredibly high quality caliber kind of person, but notice also the content of his prayer. Notice what he doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray for a miracle, even though he probably would have welcomed one. Also, he doesn't pray or he doesn't act passive in the midst of this. He doesn't expect God to just take care of everything while he sits back and waits. Instead, he prays that God would bless his efforts, that God would allow him to find a woman who was of good enough character for Isaac to marry. And as you reread that prayer, you might be saying, well, Jordan, how on earth did you get that conclusion? Looks like a lot. Uh, it looks a lot like Gideon and the story of the fleece. And if you're familiar with Judges chapter uh, five through seven, the story of Gideon. As you look at that story, Gideon doubts whether God is actually going to come through, and so he asks for a sign. And he places out in front of uh, of himself. He places out a fleece and asks God to perform a miracle to show him whether he is going to actually come through for him. And some may say, well, at first glance, this looks a lot like Gideon here in Judges. But that's not the focus. Take a look more specifically at what he is asking for. First of all, he's not being passive. He's not just sitting back with his fingers crossed, his eyes closed, waiting for someone to fall in his lap. He takes an active approach and says, God, whoever I approach, I pray that you would bless that effort. Second, notice what he asks for. He says, I want to approach this person. I'm going to ask them for a drink of water. Now, in that context and in that day and age, it was common courtesy. It was standard hospitality to offer up a drink of water to a traveling stranger. It was just what everyone would do. But what does he pray for? Prays not only that this woman would give him a drink of water, but that she would offer to give water to his camels as well. 
This is a sign of great selflessness. It would reveal much about this person's character. He's not praying for a sign from God. Instead, he's asking that God would direct his path to a woman who is of high enough quality of character for Isaac to marry. He's praying that he would find someone that is worthy of his master. Now, there's a a lot that's taking place here in this section and this prayer. And, and I think that we can learn a lot from this man as he's seeking God's will in his own life, as we try to seek God's will in our lives as well. What can we learn? First of all, I think that we should learn that we don't give God an ultimatum. We don't give God an ultimatum. Ultimatum. The story of Gideon is really Gideon giving God an ultimatum. He says, God, I don't believe you, and so I want you to do this for me to prove that you will come through for me. Gideon doubts God and needs extra assurance from God. But this man doesn't doubt God. He instead asks God to guide his steps. Don't give God an ultimatum. Second thing that we see here, he trusts in God's providence. He trusts in God's providence. Genesis 24 is a story that is all about providence. The word providence roughly refers to uh, God providing for his creation. And we see that throughout Genesis 24. It's a story of God working behind the scenes on behalf of his people. And when we seek God's will, we should trust that he is doing the same thing. We should trust his providential care. See, providence is the way that God orchestrates things to happen in creation. God is in control of every single aspect of life. God is in control of the good times. God is in control of the bad times. God is showing his providential care in the midst of all things. This is why Adoniram Judson can say, I trust God even in the midst of my suffering. That's why Abraham could trust God even when others would have gotten nervous about the situation that faced him. As we seek God's will, let us also trust God's providential care for us. Let us trust that God has our best interests in mind. And also let us recognize that best interests can be defined very differently than what we would define them. Every single thing that God does for us, for his children, is done out of love for us, for his children. And so we should trust in God's providence. Notice what else this servant does. He bathes the entire process in prayer. And I think that's something that we also should do as we seek God's will. Follow the example of this servant. Bathe the process in prayer. Next thing, lean on scripture. Now, the Bible wasn't written during Genesis 24, and so this man didn't have the Bible to refer back to. But the qualities that he's looking for in this woman are the qualities that are defined in Scripture. He's looking for someone who is selfless, of good character, and of hard work. He's leaning on Scripture as he seeks God's will. And finally, he uses his discernment that it comes from God. And in the same way, we should also use our God-given discernment. Take a look at verse 21, another extremely important passage or verse in this passage. It says this, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. It seemed like everything was starting to fall in place. And yet, instead of just assuming that things were falling into place, he says, you know what? I'm going to sit back. I'm going to observe. I'm going to make sure that this is from God and this isn't just a coincidence. 
This is a man who expresses trust in God's providence. This is a man who bathes the process in prayer. This is a man who leans on scripture. And this is a man who uses his God-given discernment to find out which wife is for Isaac. As we see Abraham's servant, we see an incredible example of a man of God. We see a man who is seeking after God. He's praying that God would guide him. And God does exactly that, as we see here in the next few verses, picking up in verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water on her shoulder. The young woman, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her head, or upon her hand, and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they finish drinking. So she quickly emptied her jars into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all of his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. See, even as this man is praying that God would answer his prayer, that God would guide him, Rebecca is already on her way to the well. God is not only going to answer this man's prayer, but he's going to answer it a lot faster than he could possibly imagine in this situation. Everything happens according to the way that he has prayed. This woman not only offers him water, but shows radical hospitality, radical selflessness in offering to water his camels as well. Put things in perspective, this man has 10 camels. This was no small task that she was offering to do. Uh, a camel can drink up to 25 gallons of water in one shot. The, the jar that she was carrying would have carried two to three gallons of water at most. And she's offering to bring 250 gallons of water before this man. She's offering to serve this man well into the night for hours and hours. This is the heart of a woman who is hardworking. This is the heart of a woman who is extremely selfless and bent on showing hospitality to the stranger. And offering to water these camels, she's showing that this, uh, she's showing her character to this man. She's showing her heart to this man. And that's why Abraham's servant begins to look at her and to watch and discern to see if this is the right woman. You see, if we had to choose who was more admirable in this story, whether the servant of Abraham or Rebecca, which, which one was more admirable to us, we would be hard-pressed to choose one or the other. Rebecca is a woman of great character. The servant is impressed. The servant waits, he watches, he observes, and not only, it's not until he learns the, the origins of, of Rebecca's family that he realizes that this is not just a coincidence, but this is God's providence, God leading him to the right place and to the right woman. Pick up in verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. 
the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the same way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. This woman that this man has encountered by chance is none other than the great niece of Abraham. Not only that, but she offers incredibly more hospitality than what she had first shown by offering her family's lodging to this man. This servant has been tasked with finding a woman from Abraham's clan. And the first person that he runs into is not just from the clan, but from Abraham's specific family. This man has been tasked with finding a woman of great character. The first person that he runs into shows hospitality that would rival Abraham himself. And notice how the servant responds. Notice how the servant responds to all of the things that have happened in this moment. He responds with worship. That's really how it works when it comes to providence. When we see it, when we recognize how God is at work in our lives, caring for us, showing his love for us, it leads us to worship. You see, the truth is the servant, like, like the servant for us, many times we can't see how God is at work in our lives at the moment. We have to take a step back. It's not until some time has passed, whether it's an hour or a day or a month or even years, that we are able to see God's hand at work in our lives. I know that's true from my own life. I can see the providential care of God time and time again, countless ways, both in the good things that I've experienced and the bad things that I've experienced. But oftentimes, I have to take a step back. I need some distance between me and the event or the situation or the circumstances that God was using to work in my life. When I was a senior in college, I had felt confident that God was calling me into ministry. I knew that that was something that that he had laid upon my heart, and and that's where he was calling me. Uh, And I also knew that most people who go into ministry are, uh, usually they attend seminary. And for several years, uh, throughout my college experience, I had gone and visited a number of different seminaries across the country, and yet none of them left me feeling at peace. Every single one that I went to, I I just felt uneasy about attending there and, and being trained to become a pastor there. And I remember I was, uh, I was driving on Highway 71, and, and it was a late Sunday night, and I was just crying out to God. And I was just saying, you know what, God? Do you want me to go to seminary? Do you even want me to become a pastor? Have I missed your calling on my life from the very beginning? And it turns out God just wasn't ready to show me what he had for me. When I was in college, I had a rather eccentric professor who, who came like a year before I got there, and he left the same year that I was there. So only at, at college for a, a very short amount of time. This man had gotten his doctorate from a school in Chicago called Trinity. And he introduced me to this school, and I, I fell in love with it. But even more so, I discovered that Trinity had a scholarship that if you had a letter of recommendation from a professor who had gotten their PhD from Trinity, they would give you half tuition scholarship. This man was short. uh, His time at my college was extremely, extremely limited and our paths crossed and God provided for me financially during that time. It was a sign of God's providence. 
another time, uh, my second to last year of, of seminary, I began to apply for church jobs. I was looking uh, all across the country for different jobs, and there was one job that I was really, really interested in. It was a church in Kansas City, uh, a church that I um, actually uh, have a friend who now works there, and they had a, a program where they would have essentially a residency program where you would go as a young uh, seminary graduate and you would serve as a, a pastoral intern for two years before going out into to actual ministry. And as someone who didn't feel called into youth ministry, uh, also actually felt called to do uh, preaching, I knew that it would be extremely, extremely difficult, if not impossible, for me to find a church job in the field that I was looking at. In fact, to me, it seemed like this was the best shot for me to get a job. Not only that, but it seemed like it was Providence that I would get this job. The church was located just a few miles away from where my best friend lived and where multiple groomsmen who were in my wedding lived. I assumed it was just fate that God would allow me to have this job. He didn't. In fact, uh, my closest friend from seminary was the one who got the job. It was kind of difficult for me in the time. But God wasn't done yet. And he led me here. He led me to a job that, as Crystal and I talked about, this is the kind of job that I was hoping for to get after those two years of serving faithfully. God's providential care for us is far better than anything that we can imagine, far better than anything that we could think. He takes care of us in the good times and in the bad. And when we look back at the ways that God has taken care of us in our lives, as we see his providential care, we see his infinite love. We see his infinite grace, his infinite mercy for us in both the good times and in the bad times. And when we see it, we respond in worship. So ask yourself, how has God shown his providential care, his providential love to you? Take a moment. Think about that. How has God shown his providential care and love to you in both the good times and in the bad times? You see, that's what the rest of Genesis 24 is making clear to us. I encourage you to read it on your own. You'll see how the servant begins telling the, the family of Rebecca about how God is orchestrating everything to allow this to happen. And Rebecca's family agrees and she agrees and she returns with the servant. We also see the great heart of Rebecca as she immediately leaves her family, just as Abraham did when she hears the call of God. Just like her future father-in-law did uh, just about 65 years earlier. The story ends happily. It tells us of how Isaac loved Rebekah. And that's the first time in the Bible that the word love is used to refer to a relationship between a husband and a wife. God's providential care for his people is astounding. I think that's what this text is getting at. Every word, every verse is telling us God is constantly and continually at work on behalf of his people. God is constantly, continually at work on behalf of us. God is not distant. God is not far off. God is at work right now in your life in countless ways. One pastor, he puts it this way. God is doing 10,000 things in your life right now, and you may be aware of three of them. God is at work in your life, and he's showing his providential care to you in every single thing that happens to you. Another way of putting this, instead of just saying that, that God has shown his providential care 
to us. Ask the question, how is God at work in your life lately? Maybe another way of putting this is, what are some God sightings that you see in your life right now? God works in both the good and in the bad. God works in the obvious and the not so obvious. Here's why this is so important. This is so important because this is the key to further spiritual growth. The key to growing spiritually in the future and right now is looking at the ways that God has providentially cared for us in the past. It builds our momentum spiritually. It encourages us and gives us confidence that God will continue to be at work. That's the first thing. This is also important because it intentionally pushes us and points us Godward. With our lives, we begin to think about how God is at work, not just in the past, but even now, we begin to look at how God is at work when we focus on his providential care. And finally, this is the key to enduring hardship. The only way that Adinaram Judson was able to say the things that he had said is because he had a great confidence and trust in God's care for him and God's love for him as seen in his providence. You see, God is constantly, continually at work on behalf of you for your good and his glory. And so I encourage you. We're going to take some time now. I encourage you to think right now of just one thing, one way that God has shown his providential care to you. It can be recent. It can be a long time ago. It can be small. It can be big. How has God shown his providential care to you? Take a moment. Think about that. I want to do something unique, something that we don't normally do. I want us to take 30 seconds, and I want us to find someone that's sitting near us, not a family member, and I want you to share with them the providential hand of God that you've seen in your own life. If you can't think of anything, it doesn't mean that God hasn't come through for you. It just means that you were probably distracted by the xylophone. Let's take a moment and turn to your neighbor and express how you've seen the, uh, the providential care of God for you in your life. God cares for his people. 
God loves his people. And it is encouraging to remember that. It is encouraging to remind each other of that love that God has for each and every one of us. What if we did that, not just today, but each and every day? What if we took intentional time to share with our family and our friends how God is at work in our lives each and every day? And from that point, what if we responded to him in worship? I think we would begin to look a little like this servant. I think we would begin to look a little like Abraham, like Rebecca in this story. That we would be able to encourage one another to grow in Christ-likeness and to respond in worship to the faithful, wonderful, gracious, merciful love that God shows us each and every day. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the ways that you are at work in our lives. We thank you that we don't live in a chaotic world that has no one in control, but there is one who is in control. And not only are you in control, but you deeply love us. God, we thank you for the ways that you work on our behalf. I pray that you would help us to remember that and that we would be encouraged by your great love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.